While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. The Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 12. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. It was about 30 years ago, a little bit more, when I was attending a cocktail party, when someone mentioned that a daughter of theirs was about to enter a convent. The group of people I met, I was with, knew all of the girl and was aware of her talents and engaging personality. And they were surprised by the young woman's decision and to a degree saddened by it. She had so much to offer, one said, using the past tense, as if the girl had died. She would have made a good doctor, another one chimed in. Then, as if to sum up all the surprise and disappointment, one gentleman remarked, yes, what a waste. The man then turned to me and politely asked me for my thoughts on the matter, although I did not know the girl. I first of all challenged his declaration. The girl was wasting her life by entering religious life and trotted out a formidable arsenal of argumentation to show that religious life is not only not a waste, but on the contrary, a fulfillment, a very productive and rewarding way of life. I assured them that a woman who becomes a religious sister has a good chance, or even better one, of obtaining self-fulfillment than her comrades who have chosen careers in the world. The talents possessed by a woman, I reminded them, are not removed when the veil is placed on her head. And it will be utilized in whatever profession she chose, teacher, nurse, missionary, social worker, what have you. It was sheer foolishness to think that the religious life was not as challenging or as fulfilling as any of the other fields of work people enter. And I listed all the works that religious communities do today. I must have convinced at least some of my listeners because they nodded in agreement. The arguments I used were nothing new. They're used by others and religious communities in campaigning for vacations. But after the party, I felt that something was seriously lacking in my response that evening. That was 30 more, more years ago. And since then, I've seen various orders of sisters at work. I've seen the growing secularization of many religious orders of women. 
and reflected on it. I've met Blessed Teresa Calcutta, and I've spent a good deal of time working with her sisters. I read the talks of the saintly Holy Father, John Paul II, on religious life, where he says that doing is not as important as being. A few years ago, I told a layman about a young woman who was a lawyer and making good money, who was entering the missionary at the charity. I told him about the community, their apostate, and their, rule, their strict rule. The man commented on the religious life this way. What a waste. The man was basically a good man, so I probably could have convinced him with all my logical arguments that religious life for a woman is not a waste of a life. I could have given him all the arguments I had done 30 years or more before. But I offered no rebuttal to his statements and perhaps shocked him when I said to him, you are right. It is a waste of a life. My dear people, that is what my sermon is about this morning. I'm going to explain to you why a vocation to a religious life is a waste of a life, a waste of talents, a waste of the very person. First, first I would like to place my words in the context of sacred scripture. I have a paradigm for you what I'm about to say is found in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 14, verses 3 to 9, the story of the anointing of our blessed Lord at Bethany. In this passage, you should note the verse. Some of those present said to one another angrily, why? this waste. So I've entitled the sermon, The Divine Waste, or The Extravagance of Love. Both are the same thing. Jesus had traveled to Bethany for, to attend a dinner being given by Simon, a wealthy Pharisee. Now it's customary for a host to honor his guest by pouring out a few drops of perfume upon him after he had arrived and sat down for dinner. It was a gracious custom, which for some reason Simon had overlooked, probably because he was so involved in going over all the preparation for the dinner and making certain that all the guests were comfortable. Those of you who have, who have thrown dinner parties will appreciate his problem. As the dinner starts, an uninvited woman, knowing that Christ was there, 
crashes the party, carrying in with her an alabaster jar of nard. Now, nard was not just a perfume. It was the perfume, a very expensive and precious ointment made from a rare plant that grew only in the far distant mountains of northern India. Another evangelist, in his account of this incident, mentions that our, mentions that our Lord's disciples figured out that this priceless jar of nard would have cost a working man one year's pay. I just could see them now, the apostles over in the corner with their calculators, how much it costs, and their shock. How did this woman obtain such a costly and rare perfume? She must have sold nearly all her possessions in order to obtain it. This woman, no doubt nervous, approaches Christ, reclining at table, and his eyes watch her expectantly as she begins her worship, her act of worship and love. Remember, the tradition was to pour out only a few drops from a phial of perfume onto the guest, and a host would usually be as sparing as possible to make certain that the perfume will go a long ways for many guests. But this woman takes her alabaster jar of perfume and breaks it, pouring it, the entire contents, lavishly upon the person of the Christ. It is written in the Song of Songs, your love is more fragrant than wine. Fragrant is the scent of her perfume, and your name like perfume poured out. For this the maidens love you. Take me with you, and we will run together. Bring me into your chamber, O king. The guests were startled by this dramatic and extravagant action on the part of the woman. They could not understand it. She gave not just a drop, but everything, everything that was worth much in the eyes of the world. It was a tradition in the East that if someone very important and distinguished used a glass that glass had to be broken so that it could never be used by a lesser person. What then does one do when one is before the God of the universe who will the seas and form the land and who breathes into man life? What better response to the All-Holy One and to shatter the vase of one's life and pour it all out in adoration. 
the evangelist John, who understood the nature, indeed the recklessness of true love, comments in his account of the anointing. The sweet smell of the perfume filled the whole house as incense burned before the monstrance and benediction fills the entire church. In Isaiah we read, the house was filled with his glory and in the Song of Songs, awake north wind and come south wind, blow upon my garden that his perfumes may pour forth and that my beloved come, will come to his garden and enjoy its rare fruits. Now our blessed Lord was deeply moved by this extremely magnanimous and touching action performed by this simple woman. And he declared to all those who were present and who were mumbling criticisms of such an extreme gesture that she had done a good thing, a fine thing. The Greek word used here is kalos, which means more than good, which is agathos. It means lovely or beautiful, as some translations put it. Christ said that the woman had done a lovely thing. One commentator explained it this way, love does not only do good things, love does lovely things. And it was great love that moved her to perform such a total deed. No, she was not prudent. And yes, she did go to an extreme. And that is why our Lord referred to it as great love. Love, if it is true and real, cannot be tamed, subdued, or conservative. Authentic love is impatient. It cannot be given out drop by drop from the file of someone's heart. There is recklessness in love, an extravagance that is beyond description. Because love is surrender and does not hold back, it pours itself out and does not count the cost, even though the cost may be very great. She was criticized and scolded by everyone else, including the disciples in that room, because like many people today, they felt that love is to be carefully measured out, weighing the cost and the profit, the disadvantages and the advantages, the pluses and the minuses. Their love is just enough love and nothing more. Their love seems to be, seeks to be reciprocated. It gives the minimum and then asks, what's in it for me? But her love was total, complete, and free. It was a love of waste done for no other reason than to be done for the sake of Christ. And in the presence 
of such a love, which prefigured in a way the total gift of the broken Christ upon the cross. Jesus proclaims, I tell you this, wherever in all the world this gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told of her as her memorial. Her gesture of love is the only action in the entire four gospels that's promised perpetual and universal memory. St. Thomas Aquinas was alone one day in his study and prayer before the large crucifix that hung on the wall there. Our blessed Lord spoke to him from that cross. He said, Thomas, you have written, written well of me. Ask me for anything, anything, and I will give it to you. Here was the moment, Thomas, everyone waits for. Ask for a long life without sickness. Ask that your summa be a bestseller on the New York Times reading list. That you be invited to talk about it on Oprah. Ask for money for your monastery for greater knowledge. Ask to be elected prior, or better yet, Master General of the entire Dominican Order. Thomas, you have written well of me. Ask me for anything, and I will give it to you. Thomas, without any hesitation, replied, you alone, Lord. You alone. And then the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost.